HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Heritage Foods, an online and wholesale distributor of heritage breed meat and poultry. Learn more at heritagefoods.com. I'm HRN's Communications Director, Kat Johnson, with a preview of this week's episode of Meat in 3. I, I think we should realize that we more or less have a broken food system. When 800 million of us go to bed hungry, uh, 600 million are obese, uh, we waste 30% of our food, then something is fundamentally wrong. We'll introduce you to one food waste solution happening in Asia. They introduced a system where residents were issued an electronic ID card that would open an automated bin and enable them to weigh the food waste being dropped off. And then they would be charged, you know, in a certain amount of money for the weight of that food. And we'll take a look at some of the real struggles happening closer to home. How is it possible that a meal that was perfectly fine to consume at... 10.59 p.m. then becomes waste at 11 p.m. So tune in to this week's Meet and 3 on Heritage Radio Network, available wherever you listen to podcasts. Hello, and welcome to Snacky Tunes. I'm one half your host, Greg Bresnitz. On today's episode, we have Dan Pashman, the James Beard winning host of the Sporkful podcast. He takes us through the evolution of his show and how he created something that speaks to his voice completely on his own terms. Next up, live in studio with Bernadette, who talk about the beauty of starting a band because you just want to, and how they took themselves on the road in support of their new EP, Shadow Paint. So sit back, relax, and here's another episode of Snacky Tunes on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. We talk about food, we talk about music, with musical dudes, finger on the pulse, Snacky Tunes.
Hello, and welcome to Snacky Tunes. I'm one half your host, Greg Brosnitz. I'm sitting here with Dan Pashman, the James Beard award-winning host, creator, omnipotent <laughs> voice. I'm sporkful. No, none of us are truly omnipotent, Greg. No, but with a good editing suite, we can seem that way. Let's take that again. Okay, I've got everything down. Yeah. I know everything. Edit out all the bad stuff. Yeah, exactly. There you go. Thanks for sitting down with us. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks we're, for having me. We're in your new offices. Yeah, these are the new Stitcher, Midroll, Earwolf offices. They're pretty snazzy. They are. I mean, uh, I don't know what level of meta it is to go bring your own podcast setup to a podcast network, but it's it's either new or will be defined yeah. at some point. <laughs> I've done it. I, I, there were t- I, I, t- I recorded with someone at like WGN in Chicago once, and it, we were like sitting in a radio studio, but using... My recorder. Yeah. So, yeah, I've been there. Yeah, I mean, there's a, half the stuff in here. I'm like, yeah, I think I could maybe figure that out. Right, right. Yeah, no, some of these are, are, are above my pay grade, too. Um, you got your start in New Jersey, born, raised. Yep. Uh, and you also didn't take the circuitous route of uh, being from, like, the food standpoint, started in journalism. Um, how did you get your start, and where did it fall into place for you? I mean, my, my career track was pretty much always, like, media communications, journalism, uh, radio. Like, it was like newspaper. I was in the high school newspaper, college newspaper, college radio. Um, worked in newspaper and radio when I got out of college. So, like, my background is always radio. The food thing is what sort of came later. And that was sort of after I had lost, like, six jobs in eight years uh, doing news radio, news talk radio and all that. Um, and I wanted to start a podcast. Friends of mine were starting podcasts. I figured this must be the future what can I host a podcast about? And I was like, well, I feel like maybe I have this different approach to food. Before we get to that, when yeah, you were yeah. in high school, um, did you have any of those like breaking stories? Like, did you bring down any like teachers or, <laughs> or anything along those lines? Or what, like, what was the focus of the writing in high school? I mean, I did kind of everything at some point. I started off like my, I had like the, the girls field hockey team was my beat like a freshman year. Uh, the passion, we need you on that. <laughs> right, right. There were, uh, I didn't, I definitely did not bring anyone down. I definitely was kind of a little bit of a loudmouth who was, uh, liked to use the newspaper to criticize the administration or certain teachers. Um, and which was a good learning experience in its own way. And we had an advisor the first few years named Mr. Dunn, who was really great and learned a lot from him. And he, uh, he was tenured and he was experienced and he was willing to, defend us when we did what journalists are supposed to do because he, you know, to defend us to the, to the administration when we did what journalists are supposed to do because he felt, I think, I never had this exact conversation with him, but that, that that's what we're supposed to be doing. Uh, but the administration got tired of him running the paper and they, so they eventually made life unpleasant enough for him that he stepped down from running the paper and they put in too much younger, inexperienced teachers who didn't have tenure, so the administration could kind of bully them, and the paper became a lot less fun at that point because so, they were just in, they just lived in constant fear of upsetting their bosses. It's a really amazing lesson that you got from high school that you can see where like defensive journalism, free press, and then the powers that be going, we don't like what you're saying. You're just students. Right, right. Get back to the field hockey games. Fortunately, Greg, that kind of stuff only happens in high school. Just it doesn't in happen high school. in real life. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, through that time and into college, like, when did you feel that you began to take on, like, what was your first defining piece as like, oh, this is my style of journalism, or these are the type of stories I want to tell? Um, was it an article or a news piece or a video piece? Um, hmm. I'd say it was probably in high school, but not in the newspaper. I wrote like an underground newsletter, newspaper magazine that I <laughs> called the Badminton Journal. Um, that started off as just sort of like coverage of our high school badminton class, but then it morphed into just sort of like satire of everything happening in the school. And I would like print out ten only ten copies and like hand them out, and like kids would like take them into the bathroom to read them. And it was a very top secret thing. This was of course before the digital age, so you had to have it on paper. And I would like stay up very late writing these satirical articles, making fun of people and teachers and the administration and the school. And uh, it Un- had, under your name or a pseudonym? I th- honestly I don't remember, but everyone knew it was me. I mean, okay. it was not a big school. <laughs> I was like, you know, like the I don't think any the administration never really got a hold of it. No one really important. I never really got in trouble for it, but it was something that I was like known for among probably ten people. And why the badminton team? Because I love badminton. I was Do you still ba- play. 
No, no, I mean, like, that was the first time I ever played badminton in high school, and I loved it. I thought it was so fun. And so, and we had rankings in our class, and, like, I don't know what it was about it, but we just got really into it, me and some of my friends. So I started writing this newsletter. And you, you mentioned that um, you went through, like, a number of jobs. You kind of probably came to in the time that the landscape for media was changing. What did, yeah. what did you face, and what truth did you have to kind of face within yourself as, as it evolved? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. I mean, I mean, first of all, it was just, like you say, a combination of the Internet and technology changing everything about media, changing all the, the, the traditional career paths, basically, like... <laughs> like those scenes in the movie where you're on the bridge, uh, on the canyon, and the, the wooden planks start falling out, and you know, like that's basically like, like I started at one end thinking like, okay, this is the bridge I need to cross to get to my career, and then like I graduated college and planks started falling. Um, what year was that? I graduated in 1999. Okay, so a little bit before things really began to change. Right, well, it was, it was the dot-com bubble right. when I graduated, okay. and then in 2000, 2001, like is when it, the bubble burst. So... Um, so, it, so there was a lot of the, the technology was creating a lot of tumultuousness, and then there was that recession of the early two thousands, and then the Great Recession uh, under George W. Bush, and so those two recessions combined with technology have like it just kept pulling the rug out from under my career, and kept making shows get canceled, even ones that seemed promising, and so the truth that I had to face was just sort of like. You know, it got to the point where it was like, am I going to be able to, like, am I going to be able to have the career that I want? Am I going to be able to do the thing that I love? And starting the Sporkful podcast really was like a last ditch effort to do that. It was like, well, if I own this thing and I create it myself, at least no one can cancel it but me. So that now I've eliminated the first issue that keeps <laughs> screwing up my career <laughs> is that other people keep canceling the shows I work on. Now no one can cancel it. But can it be successful enough to provide a job? <laughs> Was the was the thing that I had to worry about, and so for a number of years it it didn't as it slowly grew. Because you're, you're in year nine. Yeah, well, January 2010 was when the Sporkful launched. So almost in year nine, and you know, underwriting for podcasting when you started was not a thing, or or did it start as a when we started Snacky Tunes ten years ago? Our episodes are archived, and then one day I woke up and I said, "We're podcasters. This is amazing. We're, we've been we've been ahead of the curve this the whole time. <laughs> right. We didn't even know it. That's right. So did you start? Was it a podcast? Did you view it that way, or did that evolve as well? Yeah, no, it was definitely a podcast, and I definitely felt you know thought you know this is the future. I've been working in radio all this time. Like it's going to go to pod. It's already starting to go to podcasting. This is going to be where it's it's all going, and I want to get in on it early. Um, so it was very intentional and it was very much with the goal of like trying to create something that would be long lasting that could be a career. Um, but you know, those are pretty pie in the sky aspirations and it took several years before it was even a part-time job and several more years before it was a full-time job. And you mentioned that you had a different point of view. What, what was the point of view at the beginning that you felt that you said you could bring to the table and add to the conversation? Well, the, my, if I had a different point of view was my, my point of view about food, which was like very like I'm I'm not a trained chef now I'm, I'm more knowledgeable now than I was because I've been working on the show for so long and I've learned a lot but I didn't I was not only was I not a trained chef I had only ever I waited tables like in my twenties but I hadn't worked much in restaurants I was a decent home cook but like I knew very little about food and I you know like the whole like it's not for foodies it's for eaters which is our slogan like I I'm still very much an eater but I was especially then like uh, I felt that the approach was specifically the focused on eating the eating experience it's not a, i said we're not going to do cooking we're not going to do recipes we're not going to do restaurants and i don't want to talk to chefs i want to talk to my friends about the foods that we love to eat and i want to obsess in ridiculous detail about how to make those foods as delicious as possible and did you find the obsession was a good place to hang on to because you didn't have that background you're like oh we're going to talk about the perfect bite how to make everything better it was a very good way just to kind of stick to a point of view that didn't evolve into like the normal foodie. Like these are the vegetables we got at the market. This is how you like saute something. It was like, if I've thought about how to make a sandwich better than anybody else, people are going to want to hear this. Yeah. I mean, I, but, it, but I, it wasn't, it was some combination of like, yes, this feels different. So maybe people will want to listen to it, but also like it's true. It feels true to me. And so, you know, like I'm an opinionated person. I kind of, ha I do tend to obsess about little details and form opinions about the best way to do very insignificant, <laughs> totally meaningless things in the grand scheme of life. And I especially love to eat. So, so a, a disproportionate number of my opinions about meaningless details are food related. So 
So yeah, so there, there were I I will admit like there was slightly something strategic about it that like oh this feels like something that no one else is doing, but it also like it's not that it felt like I could do it because I couldn't do the other things. It's like it felt like I could do it because it's what I do anyway because I this is my personality. Um, for the the cooking channel show you do, you're eating it wrong, and um, for your your book Eat More Better. There's so many different ways to attack everyday objects and, and how to just make it 10%, 20%. I love the cereal one. I definitely changed my habits for eating cereal. You can go watch it. Um, was there any topic you got on that felt was maybe a bridge too far that you were the only one who was obsessing about how to eat it better? Did you always find a co-conspirator in that category? I mean, I could probably always find at least one person because I, I probably wouldn't have done the show like talking to myself. But like very, very early days, like probably year three... I did an episode about pen chewing. <laughs> it was not even eating. Like it was, the, it was the only episode we really did that, that did not involve digestion. And it was just about like what what are the best pens to chew on, the cap versus the end of the pen, and like what happens when the pen starts to fall apart, and like, you know, Papermate 2 versus the, the big pla- clear plastic one. <laughs> And my friend Wynn Rosenfeld and I talked and talked and talked about pen chewings. We're both passionate pen chewers, and people were disgusted. Like, they did not like that episode at all. You're like, so obviously in your in season 10, year 10, we're bringing back Return of the Pen Chewing. I'm very tempted. Like, when we hit our 10th anniversary, I've thought about, like, should we do something special? If so, what should it be? And, like, yeah, I should probably at least play a clip from that episode. Pens have changed. Technology is new. Yeah, we get. I do need an update on that episode. Yeah, I right. think there's four people that demand yeah. it. And you and your friend are two of them. Yeah, are you one of the other two? No, I'm, I'm not. I mean, look, this pen is like, I can't chew this. Yeah, that's not very chewable. It's not very chewable. But if I listen to the episode, I could get some tips. Right. Uh, speaking about heading into season 10, I mean, the show has really evolved over time. And, you know, the first, you talk about the first few hundred episodes were these uh, these focus. And, and now it's evolved into a different approach, which I want to get to. But first, like, what triggered the evolution for you internally. I think a lot of people who are doing podcasts or doing something that they have complete control over, outside of audience opinion, you're guiding you. It's really, like you said, you own it, it's yours. What pushed you to evolve and what signals or thoughts in your head you say, like, hmm, we've done this, now we're going to go here, and what did you put into place on how to begin to go towards a new point of view? Yeah, I mean... The thought process was ba- it was a combination of things. Like I was getting burnt out on doing the same kind of show over and over again. Like I, I'm the kind of person who gets bored doing the same thing. So you know the show will always evolve kind of naturally, even without it necessarily being a conscious process. In this case, it was fairly conscious in that I felt like I wanted the show to get more personal. I wanted it to resonate with people more deeply. Um, partly because I just felt like that would make a better show. And also because I felt like, you know, as more and more podcasts are launching, I'm seeing what other people are doing, what's being successful. And, you know, and there's more and more competition. It felt like if people are going to keep coming back to the Sporkful week in and week out over years, like it has to be something more. I have to offer people something more than just like this silly uh, sort of absurd take on food, which is still there. Like I still do that sometimes and I still enjoy it, but it's not what the show's about. And so... I felt like in order to, I felt like we needed to give people more. We need to connect with people more deeply. And I felt like I wanted to, to that's something that I wanted to do. We're going to take a quick musical break. We're going to play a song from our archives and we'll be back with Dan Pashman here on Snacky Tunes.
think one of the things that really drew me into the Sporkful was the humanity that comes through the show. Uh, one of the episodes that really stuck in my mind was just kind of racism when you went down and explored different cafes and restaurants in D.C. That's when I really thought I'm listening to something different. How has your view of humanity changed since you evolved your show? Well, I think that current events have had more of an impact on my view of humanity than anything that's happened on the show. Um, so in that sense, my view of humanity has become more uh, uh, pretty bleak. <laughs> uh, but I think this... So, so so that that's the answer to that exact question, but I think sort of like related to what you're asking is kind of like if there's something that I've uh, big that I've learned from working on these more serious topics of race and culture and identity, um, and this isn't exactly the deepest thought, but like just how important it is to try to put yourself in other people's shoes. And it's easy to say that, and it's easy, and, and I know that a lot of people do it in a very superficial way. They do it in a way so that they can say they did it, just so that they can shoot that person down but they don't do it in a meaningful way. And uh, I think a lot of these discussions about race and culture end up getting turned into like, is it racist or is it not? Is this person racist or are they not? Or is this offensive or is it not? Uh, what's, is it okay to say or is it not? Uh, is this character problematic or not? And some of those discussions are more useful than others, but like they all kind of have a problem, which is that they, they cause people to dig in their heels and they kind of trigger gut impulse reactions, and people just have form a quick answer, and then they just want to be right. And so I think that a much better question to ask is not like, is it this or is it that? It's more like, put yourself in the other person's shoes. Really put yourself in the other shoes. Really take a minute and think about what their life has been like and what their life is like, and what experiences have led them to feel the way they do about this issue. And then at that point, can you see it from their point of view? Like, can you, even if you don't fully agree, like, can you at least understand why they see it the way they do? You know, and that, I feel like that's a much more useful, productive question to ask. Why do you think food is the vehicle to be able to put yourself in other people's shoes? Well, it's a vehicle. It's certainly not the only one, but everyone eats. So it's universal. Um, it's, it's simple. It's accessible. It's so, it's so closely tied to identity, you know, but really it's just a tool. Uh, you know, when people start saying like food brings everyone together, it's like it can bring people together. It can divide people like food can be very divisive, too, as we talked about in that the, some of those food and race um, shows. So food is not inherently good or bad. It's a tool, but it's an especially useful one. The sandwich in Aleppo episode, which I think is probably one of people's favorites was really eye-opening way for people to hear about a, a country and a place that had just been so ravaged and so negatively portrayed. What type of response did you get to that? And like, what did people ask for more of from that story and the reaction that people get that, that surprised you or, or, or delighted you in, in doing something like that? Right. I mean, we got a great response. It was, it, we, were, we had worked on that show for like two years on and off. And so it was very gratifying to get a good response. And it was the first really big long form story that we did. You know, you know, the first kind of iteration of the show getting sort of more serious was, and it's still plenty fun and silly. We do a lot of stuff with comics and things, but we had gotten more serious. And the first iteration was kind of like getting more into race and culture and identity. The next iteration has kind of been getting more into storytelling. Um, I feel like the race, a lot of the race and culture stuff, We've kind of um, internalized it in the show so that it comes up all the time in a natural and organic way. Instead of say, saying, like, we're going to do a series about this, mm. it's just sort of like, we're going to talk to this person. And, in, you know, in the course of the 25 or 30 minute conversation, we may spend five or 10 minutes talking about race and identity, but we may also just talk about cheeseburgers. <laughs> and I, I, I like that. I'm happy with that because it feels more natural and doesn't feel forced um the storytelling stuff you know is just kind of another new way to uh, to present the show and that's we sort of stumbled into a, an ongoing series with you know we did searching for rosa parks pancakes which was an episode about this recipe they that the library of congress found of a pancake recipe they found in rosa parks personal documents and we went did this whole story trying to sort of 
what can you learn about Rosa Parks by looking at this recipe? And then we called the Syrian sandwich one, Searching for the Aleppo Sandwich. And then we did this one about the this Cambodian-owned donut shops of Los Angeles, which we decided to call Searching for the Donut King. And we're like, oh, look, we like we made a series. <laughs> Each of those episodes was months apart. But so I'm hoping we'll do another one. But I think that what I liked about that show and why it resonated, and you kind of touched on it, but it's like you, you say Syria, people's eyes glaze over. They know something horrible is happening there. It has happened and continues to happen there even if they're pretty well informed and can tell you who's on which side and a little bit about how the conflict came to be, it still feels overwhelming and depressing and, and um, almost unreal. It's like the old, I always forget if it's Stalin or Lenin, you know, uh, one death is a tragedy, a million deaths is a statistic. That principle guided that show because it's like, if you do a show, if you do a show about how the city of Aleppo has been reduced to rubble, like what does that even mean? It's just too much for people to process. If you do a show about a sandwich shop, well, everyone has a favorite sandwich shop, so suddenly it feels real and tangible. And you can think about like, well, what if my favorite sandwich shop was something we had to search for that wasn't a given? Right, right, right. If Greenpoint all of a sudden right. was under rubble, how would I get back to Peter Pan Donut? Right, right, exactly. How do you find your story, especially because you don't go down the chef restaurant new opening up, how do you continue to find original stories or, or what checks the boxes now um, that doesn't just play into the media cycle or something that is currently happening that will extend past just a, a shelf life? Right. I mean, I, uh, I, don't, I don't know that there's a formula. Part of it is just like something seems interesting or this person seems interesting and different, you know. Um, I try not to be too much, too beholden to the news cycle or the seasons of the holidays. Like some years we'll do a show about a certain holidays, other years we won't. Some years we do a St. Patrick's Day show. Last year I declared we're not doing Thanksgiving shows anymore because it's like such a drag and like food media is so obligated to have something new every year on Thanksgiving. And it's like, who wants anything new? Like there's nothing more to say about Thanksgiving. Um, maybe we'll come back to it, but like this year we're not doing it. So, um... I think you just got to follow your own curiosity. Like, good ideas are everywhere all the time. There's never any shortage of ideas. You just have to train yourself over time to be attuned to them, to recognize them when they fall in front of your face. You know, to be curious, to ask questions. That show about the Cambodian-owned donut shops of Southern California only started because I was in L.A. and I was driving around for some other stuff and just happened to notice how many mom-and-pop donut shops there were there and that there are no chain donut shops there. And I, I was like, what's, the, and I love a mom and pop old school, like glazed donut. And I put something on Twitter, like, what's the deal? Like, has anyone else ever noticed this? And it turns out everyone in Southern California <laughs> noticed it and knew all about it. And there's this whole history of Cambodian refugees and immigrants owning these stores. And it all traces back to one guy. And so that was, but, but like, it took, it just took me noticing that all these donut shops mom and pop donut shops were there, that it was different from anything else I'd seen in other big cities and asking some people about it. And that became this huge story that we did. As you find these stories, um, now that you're part of a, a larger network, do you still have the freedom to do whatever you want? Or are there things that you have to consider because you're part of a larger network? Or it's like, Dan thinks of this, it's a story next week, it's running in two months. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, no, they're, they're, Stitcher slash mid-roll has been amazing. We have total creative freedom, They've never had anything but support for all the shows that we've done. And, uh, yeah, that's awesome. So it's uh, I'm very lucky in that respect because a lot of creative people don't get that kind of control over their work. One of the other things you talk about is uh, humor in your show and talking to comics. Um, you had Michael Ian Black, who I my brother and I grew up watching The State. I, I mean, just he's a hero to us. All of them are a hero to us. But you also use it to a, a, a talk about larger issues like body image, which kind of rolls throughout various episodes. How do you balance the, the humor by taking on these serious uh, issues? And are they discussed previously with the guests and, as a focus, or does it just kind of come up naturally as something that you said before was woven into the, the thought of the show? It depends on the guest. Mm -hmm. um, if it's a celebrity or a comic or something, like usually we're not telling them that much in advance. But like, you know, Michael Ian Black had written an article about masculinity for the New York Times. He has talked about his own issues with body image in the past. People who get interviewed a lot, you know, like you're not, you're not likely to ask them something they're going to be like, oh my, how, how dare you ask me that? Like, like they're usually pretty, pretty game. And, and comics and entertainers are also like accustomed to being 
very open about themselves. Most are. And so it's not so hard to get them to open up. It's the, the challenge is, is doing it in a way that's thoughtful enough that gets them excited about the conversation uh, and that the listeners get to hear a different side of them than they've heard before. So in terms of, ba- but in terms of balancing comedy and humor, I mean, it, I'm sorry, but in terms of balancing humor and the more serious stuff, like it, it depends on the guest. I mean, it, it helps that I like very dark humor. So I find it's very easy for me to flip between like, um, between joking around and then like making sort of very dark jokes about serious things. So that probably eases the transition. Uh, we first met when you were taping Ask Mimi, which was one of the best live podcast tapings that I have seen. Oh, thanks, man. Um, how do you guide someone so iconic as her to do a new type of media? And how did you craft that together to create the show um, and making sure that she doesn't get lost, but while still focusing for uh, the listening audience? Yeah. I mean, Mimi, first of all, like, Mimi's amazing. So that's the, that's the first thing is pick a person to work with who's already amazing. Uh, but, you know, I, I, I love the role of like point guard in a, at a live show or, or like, you know, I'm not so interested in being the star personality. Like certainly you don't go into my line of work if you don't like being the center of attention, but I, I, I'm not interested in doing a show that's like all about me. I get a lot of pleasure from picking my spots where I make it about me, but then also, um, bringing things out of other people. And make and, and like I I love the sort of team feeling of like we're making a show we're putting on a show, and whatever serves the best show is what I'm going to do. And sometimes that means me stepping forward and and talking about myself. Sometimes it means me shutting up. Um, Mimi's amazing, so that helps. As I said, um, it's just you know part of it doing live shows is just experience. Certainly, I go in with a plan, although. Uh, that we did some early Ask Mimi tapings, and the feedback that I got from a couple of folks here at Stitcher whose opinions I really respect was, you're preparing too much. Mm. You're overproducing. Don't prepare so much. Like, you have good instincts. Trust your instincts. Um, because it, it, people could feel me trying to manage the thing on the stage. So I took that note to heart, and I made a new rule for myself that when I do a live show, I'm not allowed to, I'm only allowed to take one piece of paper onto stage with me. All my notes have to fit on one piece of paper. How big's the paper? A regular piece, eight and a half by 11, but two sides. Okay. One piece of paper, and it's a pretty big font, because I I need to be able to glance at it quickly and see what it says. So it's like, it's not big paragraphs of text. It's like bullet points and the bare minimum that I need to make sure I remember. And that's it. And like a lifetime's worth of experience. And experience helps. Yeah, I mean, certainly I think I'm better doing live shows than I was a few years ago, and doing it helps, and doing it more often helps... Um, you know, it's just, it's a matter of having your mind in several places at once, which is a hard skill. You know, you're, you're listening to the person, you're thinking about what you might say or where it's going to go next. You're also attuned to the audience. You're attuned to what you're recording. Live shows are a unique challenge because you're kind of doing two different types of shows at once. It's one thing in the studio to just talk for two hours. And sometimes we'll do an interview and you'll be like, eh, this is kind of hit or miss, but we taped for an hour and a half and I really only need like... 25 or 30 minutes to make a show so that's fine but you can't do a live show like that if, if only 25 or 30 minutes out of your 90 on stage is good that was a shitty live show and your audience suffered for the other right 60. right exactly so but the flip side is that if you're constantly moving things along on stage to make for the best possible live show the m- most energy and 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 to move past slow points as quickly as possible and not to take chances by asking a question where you're not really sure if it's going to pan out or not. Like when you're in a studio, studio, you can just cut it. If you do that too much, you may make a great live show, but then you realize like, wait, we only taped, we didn't tape enough mm. to stitch together a great, a great ep- you know, episode. So it's, that's a unique challenge. You always got to like rely on the fact that the live energy will carry you through. So like you can kind of do some stuff that might end up being, a little slow live, but it will be great in the podcast. And you can kind of like, the audience will stay with you for that, I found. You won the James Beard Award this year. Congratulations. Thank you. What changes for a podcaster when they win the James Beard Award? It's funny because like most awards, like, yeah, like it's nice to win awards, but uh, the few awards we've ever won, like even if they were fairly prestigious, like didn't have any real impact. This one, you felt a real impact. 
Um, partly just because it's one of the few industry awards that everyone knows. You know, like even people who don't know anything about food have heard of the James Beard Awards. And so it impresses people right away. Um, but the biggest thing, impact that it had was that, and look, this is the fourth time I was nominated. We didn't win the first three times. And every other time I went to the James Beard Awards and didn't win, you know, it was like, I was like, I didn't know many, many people there and nobody knew me. And like I was like mostly in the corner with a couple of friends. This was the first time that I was ever at an award at James Beard Awards where it felt like people there were actually listening to my show. That was really exciting because there's a lot of super smart, talented, amazing people there. So to have those people who you admire coming up to you and being like, oh, my God, I listened to your show was an exciting thing. So it more like it, it just kind of made me feel like. Like you asked earlier about like what was the driving force behind the, the early days of the Sporkful, like what was it inside of me? I forget how you put it, but basically like mostly it was just like the fear of losing my job or the fear of having to like go to law school or do some job that I didn't want to do or not being able to live out my dream career. That's what has motivated me. And winning the James Beard Award and the, and seeing the reaction from people in the in the world of food media, it was the first time that I felt like, oh, this, like, we made it. Like, this thing actually is going to continue to exist for a while. Like, it was the first time that I felt like we're not, we were on solid footing. Like, like this thing exists. It's been around. It has a reputation, and people know about it. And I don't, I don't ever want to get cocky, and I don't want to lose a little bit of that fear because I think that's a good motivator. But I don't necessarily need to worry about going out of business tomorrow. Dan. Thank you for being on Snacky Tunes. Where can people listen to The Sporkful, follow you, get your tips? Yeah, I mean, The Sporkful, anywhere you get your podcasts. Stitcher is my personal favorite, but full disclosure, they produce my show, so I'm biased. Um, at The Sporkful on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, the whole nine yards. Great. Well, we've got another song from our archives, and then we'll be back with the second half of Snacky Tunes. <laughs>
This episode is brought to you by Heritage Foods. Heritage Foods was founded to sell ancient breeds of livestock and poultry that were becoming extinct, largely because industrial agriculture willfully pushed healthy heritage breeds aside for more profitable, faster-growing animals. Rare heritage breeds are saved when popular demand increases and farmers have the incentive to raise them. This Thanksgiving, we encourage you to buy a turkey from Frank Reese's Good Shepherd Poultry Ranch. Frank's turkeys are 100% purebred heritage, 100% pasture-raised, and 100% antibiotic-free. Turkeys are available in two-pound increments. You choose your size. Don't wait. Pre-order your Heritage Thanksgiving turkey today at heritagefoods.com. Welcome back to Snacky Tunes. I'm one half your host, Greg Bresnitz. In studio today live, we have Bernadette. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Want to tell people who you are, who's on acoustic guitar, and who's on keys? Um. (laughs) <laughs> I'm Ricky. I'm on guitar. I'm Bianca. I'm on keys. Welcome. So nice Thank to you. have you in here. Proper first. I would say this is like we're in winter now. Yeah. yeah. Oh, it, yeah. Oh, definitely. I feel like we didn't get, I had like a nice fall jacket. I didn't get to really wear it. We're just now. Mm-hmm. Game on. Winter. I'm, I'm, I'm wearing a cardigan right now. That, that's, yeah. that's just, you know. Just a proper indie rock <laughs> kind of like cardigan ready to yeah. kind of smooth into the, the winter. Exactly. Brought out the beanie today. I know. Time. I definitely thought we had more time. Yeah, right? Yeah. No, yeah. yeah. Fall was too uh, minimal. Well, you know, we just flew by. <laughs> Never heard a season. <laughs> it's minimal. Minimal. <laughs> yes. minimal. Uh, May 29, 2016 was your first Instagram post. That's true. What was the conception of the band and, and how did you begin to say, we're in a band? Did you have songs? Did you say we were going to make a music project together? Where did that, it start? It started, um, Bianca and I had just, we were, were friends and uh, we were hanging out and we were just talking, we were having, literally having like oysters one day and we were talking about uh, how she always, you know, she's like, I've never been in a band, but I love music and I'd love to be in a band. I was like, well, let's start a band, you know, mm-hmm. we could, let's do so it. We just and did it. That was it. Like and so that, that, that yeah. post that you just discussed, that was literally the first time. That was it. That was the conception of the band right there. Was it, did you um, have it over Oysters? Like, did you put the post up and get the banner thing? Or was there a, a difference between Oysters, band name, decision? That, that, no, no, that, that, that picture was taken at Momentet. And that was at the moment that we, it was like, okay, we have a band name now. We're, we're in a band. This is our band. We started a band. And for not being a bit, did you play instruments before, or is it just like no instruments, no nothing? You're just like, I just want to be in a band. Um, so Ricky's played instruments. I've like, you know, messed around with guitar, but nothing like really. I've never played keys before, so. I mean, it's very like 1970s through 1990s way to like, I want to be in a band, so we're in a yeah. band. <laughs> so what was the evolution? I, I know that you talked about that. It wasn't really until um, you became a trio that you became a band. But like, what was that year from the first Instagram post, getting the name? <laughs> what was that first year like? Um. Bianca and I got together and we kind of wrote some things and then our lives just, you know, we were busy with life, you know, and uh, it wasn't until probably about a year after we conceived the band that we were like, well, actually, I, I, I was offered to, to play a solo show and then I was like, you know what, this would be a perfect opportunity to turn the solo show into a, the first Bernadette show. So we corralled some friends and uh, we made it happen. And where were the songs in that process? And what was it? What made it on the EP? Were those song, EP were those songs back then, or was it just like just certain songs? You're just playing the time just to say we're going to play a show, and this is what we have. Uh, the EP, the, those those songs were all pretty much written within a, a month period of each other. It was really kind of because of that show that those songs even came about. So we I wrote the songs, and then we went into the studio about a month and a half after that first show, and that that's when we recorded the EP. And for you, uh, for dabbling in guitar and never mm-hmm. playing keys, how is the evolution? Like, what is the mindset of saying, I want to be in a band, and then the actual work that it takes to get to that place? Well, I definitely. <laughs> both both uh, public and <laughs> private. <laughs> yeah, I definitely didn't know what I was getting into. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it was funny. Like, the first time in the studio, everyone was like, You were having the most bizarre experience, like, in the studio for the first time, and, like, didn't even play a show yet that's like unheard of so you know it was definitely interesting and was the uh to learn all these instruments self-taught is it uh how are you doing it (laughs) or how have you done it just do it (laughs) i don't know (laughs) not much thought yeah just kind of one i mean no it's definitely like you know it takes hard work and practice um but yeah you know you just do it can we hear a song? Sure. Yeah. yeah. What are you going to play for us first? Um, 
I guess we'll start with the first song on the EP. It's called Forever and Instance. Great. Here we go with Bernadette live on Snacky Tunes. In the comfort of masochistic empathy I lay myself at your horror There's no further I could burn without a break I'll bleed my innocence in your honor When the light fades and the silence fades And your boredom lays down all its clutter You can bury me gently underneath The lily-white chains of your armor My helpless lust for you And you are Derail My helpless lust for you Owning death Dance forever and instance. Isolation, isolation, isolation. Lust for you And you are My helpless lust for you My helpless lust for you Road and feet in the catastrophe of love's been branded on me all so sweet before we get to the Shadow Paint EP. I, one more follow-up question. Yeah. What was it about being in a band that you wanted without really having much experience in playing instruments? Or what was it that spoke or called to you? I mean, I've always loved music. I always loved the idea of being on stage. And I mean, Ricky always tells me I'm like a natural-born performer. And I <laughs> feel like I kind of knew that before. So it was just something I needed to like actually do she's got to take those dance moves not natural <laughs> dance moves to the stage you know? and it just called to you yeah it's really interesting when those things speak to you and you don't have a really a good reason or mm-hmm. you can't put your finger on it right. you can't trace it back you're just like it's just inside yeah. it's just part of you exactly and then when you did your first show how did it feel i was terrified <laughs> um yeah i mean it was one of the scariest slash coolest moments of my life like a bunch of friends came and supported me and after we played like everyone in the band just gave me a big hug and it was a moment that i'll never forget that's incredible yeah when you were doing the the ep it it was more than just three of you it was a huge group of friends how Mm -hmm. did it come together and, and what was the recording process 
Um, well, so yeah, when we when we had that that initial show, um, we kind of talked to a couple friends about playing um, with us. And so when we went to the studio, I was like, well, you guys already know the songs. Do you guys just want to come into the studio with us? And everyone's like, yeah, let's do this. So um, we recorded in Greenpoint at uh, my buddy Jeff, his uh, studio, Studio G. And I mean, yeah, it was really just like five friends just hanging out and playing music. I mean, that's it's as simple as, as that, as, you know. And was it? something that was constructed and every take was the same or was it just versions of the song and then you pick the one that you love the most what was the what was the paring down process there there is definitely a solidified you know kind of vision on 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 what the songs were i think uh molly molly out of everyone is the more kind of she'll no two take is the same kind of thing for her so i mean there's the rough sketch but she she definitely improvises a lot uh and still does live also and what did the members contribute in that moment of time that are no longer part of the band? Part of the li- or part yeah. of the live experience. Part of the live I mean, experience. there there are there there's. I think the most noticeable thing is there's there's no second guitarist, you know, live. Uh, Bianca's actually adopted some of the the, the parts though on on keys, so mm-hmm. uh, there's that. And uh, there's also no bass uh, live. We we have, we have two. Well, we have a key bass that we play for some songs, um, but uh, yeah. So that's kind of. And, what, and the decision process to take it back down to a trio, was it a tough conversation? Did you have to say, thanks for coming to the studio, get out of the band, <laughs> no. hit the road? Or, or no. how did it get from from a larger group ensemble down to the three of you? Uh, it was, I mean, you know, everyone, it was, obli- it was a combination of like obligations and just kind of other things. You know, like uh, our buddy Gordy played bass with us and he's in another band and they're pretty active. And so it was just, you know, it was just kind of natural. He was like, all right, well, thanks for, you know, thanks for helping with this thing, you know, but... And we're all still good buddies, so it's, you know. For the shows that are at home in Brooklyn, will they ever come and join you on stage, or is it just permanent trio status? I think right now, uh, I mean, we've talked about it, actually, because it would be fun. Actually, uh, Gordy and I were talking about this a, a little bit ago. Like, it would be fun. He, he's like, I'd love to, just, yeah, exa- exactly what you just said, just jump on stage and play a few songs with you. And so, I mean, that's definitely a possibility. Can we hear another song? Sure, yeah. What are you going to play for us? Uh, we're going to play the first single from the thing. Uh, yeah, it's called uh, Six Strands. <clears throat> be a different version of it, but it'll be the same, you know, same hit song that, you know, everyone's dancing to. <laughs> La the woven Six strands of your hair As a charm bracelet Round my wrist instead Under the pavement Caress in the cracks As a remembrance Of our faded past Waiting to find Solace that spoon-fed The intrinsic shine Of love's late lost too long I still cling to all you said Mud on the water Collected in fire Sobbing daughter Clandestine desire Waiting to find Solace that spoon fed the intrinsic shine of hopes they thus too long. In truth, partially, the truth it was for me. I still cling to all your said No, we are Is what we were A failed man you were A failed man you were No, we are 
got back from your first tour in august same terror as your first show or old pro by this time i mean more excitement you know because you're like going on tour we went to a bunch of places i've never been before um and you know in the beginning it's like oh my god i don't know how i'm gonna do this but then by the end of the tour it seemed like so natural like just playing every day you know it was like second nature so it was a really good experience uh any experience that burst the bubble and removed some of the glamour from the... <laughs> Our near-death experience? Do you want to <laughs> yeah. take oh. this one, Ricky? Oh, please. <laughs> um, so there was a bed in the back of the van. Uh, we were driving, and so uh, Bianca and Molly were taking a little nap in the back, and we, we just left Detroit. And we're heading down the highway, you know, doing 7580 or whatever, and uh, all of a sudden, the hood of the van just pops up and slams up against the windshield. So it's completely black. Cracks and the windshield. Cracks the windshield. We're rear going The mirror falls all the way into the back. Yeah. It's, Wait, <laughs> what, who falls all the way? In? The, the rear view mirror. Okay. Yeah, the rear view mirror. Yeah. So it's, and you know, I'm in the middle lane on the highway. So I had to navigate, you know, get off the road while, you know, not really having too much vision, uh, which was, it's pretty terrifying. But So you just pull over, have two shots of whiskey, <laughs> pace around the van for 45 minutes yeah. and then get back on the road essentially we yeah, r- roughly roughly yeah, yeah. That's <laughs> or a good cry okay. <laughs> or a ten <laughs> that's amazing yeah um, and then what were the cities that you hit um, so we started in Detroit went down to Athens Georgia uh, Savannah where else um, Nashville Nashville uh, Wil- we did a lot of Wilmington, the Carolinas yeah oh Raleigh Raleigh mm-hmm. um, yeah and favorite favorite venue and favorite food while on the Ooh. road. Ooh. Ooh, favorite venue was definitely in Charleston. See, I Tin Roof. I did like Tin Roof a lot, but I also dug in Athens. Uh, that place. We that played. place was cool. Yeah, yeah. And the sound. That was my yeah. favorite sound actually. And best food, best bite on the road. Hmm. Oh, that's tough. Ooh, cookout. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you. Oh my gosh. Have you ever it's... been a cookout? So it's like this fast food spot, and um, I think they're mainly in the Carolinas. I think there's some in Virginia too, but it was the best. It was so good. What type of barbecue or fast yeah, food? Yeah, um, yeah. I ha- I got like this pulled pork sandwich, and they have a quesadilla as a side. Oh, amazing! <laughs> yeah. Just in case you're not going to get full from the pulled pork, right. we're going to use some cheese to come up the works. Exactly. Uh, so EP out September. Yeah. First tour done. Fall or winter is officially here. Yeah. We're out of the minimal season. That's <laughs> out of the minimal. What does the coming months look like for Bernadette? Um, so we're gonna we're we're playing a show uh, next, or we're we're in the works of we're gonna play a show next month, uh, and then we're gonna kind of take it easy for the rest of the year. But we are talking, we're trying to organize. We want to uh, do a music video for one of the songs on the EP. Amazing. Um, one of the songs called "I Know I." Um, I think we're just gonna. We, we we've been writing. We have a bunch of new songs. I think our, we're pretty much just focusing on just more project-based stuff before, and then hit start doing live shows again. I mean, winter is upon us, and for anyone that is a New Yorker in the winter, this is the time that you're creative. Right. Because you just bunker down, and it's time to hibernate you are just hibernating, and you know that as soon as it turns nice, you're not getting anything new done or any work done. So this is like <laughs> four or five months of pure creativity and yeah. just hard work just to coast on the rest of the... The rest of the warm months. It's true. Uh, well, we want to make sure we have time for one more song. Sure. But where can people find you, hear the EP, follow you on Instagram, look at that very famous Instagram the, first post? That's right. Look, that, Exactly. The fabled first post. Um, 
Uh, yeah, you can find us on Instagram, uh, Bernadette, well, the handle is Bernadette underscore is underscore a underscore band. So Bernadette is a band. Um, you can find us on all the Spotify, iTunes, Bandcamp, everything. Just search for Bernadette in Shadow Paint is the name of the EP. And uh, yeah, that's it's great. That's it. Well, also thank you to Dan of The Sporkful for speaking with us. Early in the episode, and thank you, Bernadette, for coming. Thanks for having, Bye. Thank you. having us. Yeah, we will be back next week with an all new episode of Snacky Tunes. What are you gonna take us out with? We're gonna take you out with actually a brand new song. <gasps> so this is a debut. This is a Snack, yeah. Snacky Tune exclusive. We love it's these. It's true. It's oh, true. They're it our favorites. What's it called? Uh, Morocco. Morocco. Well, yeah. thanks for listening. <clears throat> we'll be back next week here on Snacky Tunes. listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.